We've been talking in these days about uh, our identity as a church. Uh, who is Hope Alliance and what are we trying to do? And we started off last week by reminding everyone of our identity statement, uh, a basic two-word statement that sums up everything that we are. We are simply Jesus. We use the story of the transfiguration to show that this is God's message for the world. Uh, and that all too often we fall into traps of experiences or, or the rituals of religion or just waiting for a future and we miss out on the Jesus of now. And it's our desire in everything we do, in every gathering, in, in every ministry, in every event, that this idea, this identity of simply Jesus is front and center in all that we do. To make sure we stay on that track, as a church we have four key priorities, four values that help us make sure that we are pursuing this reality of simply Jesus. And today we want to talk about the value of gospel saturation. Gospel saturation. What does it mean to have the gospel saturate every single thing we do as a church? That's our ambition. Whether we are meeting in community groups, whether we're having a Sunday morning gathering, whether we're part of kids' ministry that's happening now, uh, or whether we're having an event for our community to engage in, we want the gospel to be saturated in all of it. Uh, we use the word saturated on purpose. So think with me of the imagery of rain falling. Uh, most people aren't thrilled with rain, uh, but it's a perfect imagery for this. There's all kinds of different rain, isn't there? Uh, and, and there's different amounts of rain. So there's the sprinkle, right, which is my least favorite rain, uh, especially when you're driving. You know that, right? It's the one where you can't set the, the windshield wiper rate to the exact amount. It's either too fast or too slow, and it's like, you know, it brings that road rage inside of you to a heightened amount. And then there's like the, the massive storms, right, or the hurricanes. The rain that comes through and just destroys things. And what I would suggest to you is all too often in the ways that churches use the gospel, it's happening in one of those two ways. Either just a little bit of a sprinkle here and there on different things, or it comes railroading through everything, leaving destruction in its path. But we choose the word saturate. So think of a steady rain that is just filling the ground with saturation, with water, with fullness. Think about your yards right now, right? The place in your yard that the sun beats down on that is no longer green. It's crusty and it has remnants of things that used to be called grass, right? But then there's parts of that yard that <clears throat> have a tiny bit of shade, right? You know these parts, right? And the water seems to accumulate there. And that grass is lush and it's green and it's about neck high because you're not mowing because the rest of the grass isn't there, right? And so what we're saying is the difference between those two things is actually the difference between life and death. Do you see it? And so we want the Gospel to saturate everything because it is the source of true life. So why? Why do we do... Uh, or pursue this reality of gospel saturation. Uh, we could really turn to any place in the New Testament and teach a sermon on this. 
I want to go to Colossians chapter 1. So if you have a copy of the Scriptures, you can turn there. If not, fear not. They will be on the screens in front of us. I'm just going to read a couple of verses at the beginning of this chapter. And then as we go on over the next couple of minutes, we'll pop back a little bit later into the chapter and and pick up on uh, some more in-depth explanation from Paul. Uh, Colossians is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul. Paul was a first century missionary of Jesus. He was commissioned by Jesus himself and sent out to help people outside of Israel hear and respond to the Gospel. And so Colossians is uh, Paul's letter to the church that met in the town of Colossae. And I want to read verse 3 through 6. This is what Paul writes. He says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the Gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the Gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. Word of God. There's two things to me that are loud and clear in these three verses. Perhaps you heard it as I read. Two reasons or rationales for pursuing a gospel-saturated identity. The first is, it's our true message. Did you hear that in there in those verses? Paul says the true message of the gospel. The gospel is our true message. The second is that it's the gospel that bears fruit. Paul says it's been bearing fruit all over the world just as it has been bearing fruit in you. So let's talk about those two things over the rest of our time this morning and try to make sense of exactly what's happening here. Paul says the gospel is our true message. What does that mean? How does that inform us? Well, to to get after this, we have to understand what this concept of gospel even means. Perhaps you've been in the halls of the church for a long time. The word gospel echoes around in your head. You've heard it a million times. Maybe it's never been defined for you. Perhaps it's your first time in a church uh, gathering and the word gospel is brand new to you. You have no concept of what it means. Either place is a good place to start. This is what the gospel means. right? It is the Greek word euangelion. Right? From that word, we get our word evangel- evangelism, evangelize, evangelical. Those are all rooted in this original word. But this word is actually a Roman word. Right? The people who popularized this concept of gospel was the Romans and the Roman Empire. In fact, when the Roman Empire would expand at any time and in any place, it was called the gospel. The delivering of the news that the Roman Empire was on the move, that it was expanding, that it had taken new territory, that declaration was what they called euangelion. It was the gospel. And so it was a proclamation of new rule for a group of people that promised them peace. Right? So 
Uh, I know lots of you, especially kids, you've been in school all week. You don't want any more history lessons, but bear with me for just a moment because history is kind of my favorite. So the, in the Roman Empire, they had this concept called the Pax Romana. Ever heard of this before? Pax is Latin for peace. Uh, Romana, of course, Latin for Rome. This is the peace of Rome. And so every time the Roman Empire expanded, the idea was they were actually bringing peace to the world. Now, if you were the place to which they expanded, you probably bristled at that concept of them bringing peace to you by conquering you through military victory, right? But that's what they thought. Now you can be part of Rome. And if you're part of Rome, that's the way you get the full life. Now you'll have access to power and might and be part of the greatest thing the world has ever seen. So in the days of Jesus, Jesus is, is born right into the, the height of the Roman Empire. Julius Caesar, you remember, uh, the, the famous uh, ruler of the Roman uh, establishment of the Roman Empire uh, has been killed, and eventually his adopted son, Caesar Augustus, you ever heard that name before, has come to power. And you remember, Jesus is born, the Bible says, in the days of Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus is in charge. Now, it came to be that uh, Julius Caesar, after his death, began to be thought of as divine, as a god. And Caesar Augustus, as his son, then adopted the name for himself, long before it was ever written in the Bible, Son of God, right? Now that doesn't take anything away from Jesus. It just helps us understand what the Gospel writers, what the Bible writers were trying to do in the culture of their day. So this idea was that Caesar Augustus, as the Son of God, was bringing true peace to the world through great victories that unleashed true life and freedom to all the world. That was the Gospel. Does that make sense? So Jesus' associates, after experiencing His whole life, begin to write what become known as the four Gospels. We know those, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Why are they called the Gospels? Because they're proposing an altogether different true proclamation than the Roman Empire of the day. Do you see this? They're in stark contrast. They're competing for truth. They're using the exact same word. And oh, by the way, Caesar Augustus, you might call yourself Son of God, but Jesus is the true Son of God. Flesh of God, the image of God incarnate, Paul will go on to write here uh, to, to the church at Colossae. And so they take this idea, this concept uh, of uh, gospel being a proclamation of a new rule that brings the peace you've always been looking for, and they say that message is actually correct. But the Roman Empire isn't the means to deliver it, Jesus is. So Jesus, according to Mark's Gospel, when He shows up on the scene ready for public ministry, the first thing He says is, Behold, the Kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, there's a new kingdom here. There's a new rule because Jesus is present. That is, if you want a very um, basic definition of the Gospel, it is this truth. That Jesus has come to bring peace to the whole world. If you want a more um, 
thoughtful definition, then let me offer this one to you. This is the gospel. The gospel is the true declaration that Jesus is the victorious, rightful, and eternal King who has brought peace to the world through His incarnation, right? That's theological words for saying His coming to earth. His incarnation, His death on the cross, right? That's where He fights the big battle, which happens to be not against physical armies, because they're not the actual oppressors, but against sin and death itself. And then in His resurrection, because His rising from the dead is not just so we can have a cool holiday once a year. It's the victory over sin and death that actually brings peace to the world. So the Gospel writers are saying, listen Romans, you're you're looking for exactly the right thing, but in all the wrong places. Do you see it? The Gospel is a proclamation of what God has done through Jesus. Now all too often uh, in the church, the Gospel has been reduced to what I would call a proposition. Right? A set of beliefs that if you agree to them, then you get to go to heaven someday. And I don't mean to make light of that, because at a very basic level, we agree with that here at Hope Alliance. But when we shrink the Gospel into just that kind of form, we're missing the global, the cosmic, and the holistic scale that it's meant to take on our personal lives as well. This is about a new rule who we submit to and who we follow because we believe that it's Jesus who brings us the peace that our hearts and souls are actually longing for. That in following Him, we get this. So why do we pursue Gospel saturation? Why is it that in every single thing we do, the Gospel is front and center? Because we agree with Paul that it's the true message. Now, implied in that statement, whenever you say this is the true message, right? Like I'll say, uh, if you're a true fan, a true football fan, or if you're a true Bethlehem resident, you ought to root for the Eagles, right? Because they're your team, they're your area. And I meet constantly these people who are rooting for the Giants, and the Cowboys, and the, the Dolphins, and, and all these other things. And it, it doesn't make sense to me. And I, so they're not true, right? Uh, I'm joking, of course. Not joking that they exist. They do exist. I'm joking that they're not true fans, right? But you get the idea. Whenever the word true is inserted as an adjective of something, what you're also implying is that out there are a bunch of would-bes, right? Out there are a bunch of uh, could-be, would-bes that actually aren't true. So we don't live in the days of the Roman Empire, right? We don't have Caesar Augustus declaring himself to be the Son of God. We don't have uh, the Roman Empire having heralds and, and people come to new towns and posting proclamations of a gospel. But we have lots of would-be gospels. And we have lots of would-be sons of gods who are telling us, if you do my thing, if you follow me, if you're after that, that's how you're going to get the peace that your heart and soul long for. That thing that you're actually deeply aching for inside. If you, if you live for yourself, if you accumulate lots of stuff, you'll be happy, right? That's a false gospel. You see it? 
Uh, if, if you're the best parent in the world and get your kids involved in all of these things, then they're going to love you someday, right? That's a false gospel. What's your heart actually longing for is true security, true significance, true acceptance that only comes through embracing Jesus as the rightful King. And so knowing that our world and our hearts are filled with what I'll call false gospels, right? That means that we have to be vigilant regularly in everything we do when we're gathered and when we're home by ourselves, be telling the gospel to ourselves because we tend to follow other gospels. Paul says to the church at Colossae, this is the only true gospel. We agree with them. And so we saturate everything we do with the gospel. But Paul says something else interesting, and it's kind of implied here, but he says it elsewhere. It's not just that the gospel is the true message. Paul would actually take it a step further, and he would say, it's actually our only message, right? And if you're like really an astute listener to my preaching, you could probably at some, well, at some point say, he's, you know, Adam says a lot of different things, but he's actually really only got one sermon, right? And I would say to you, yes, exactly. Because the New Testament tells us there's only one sermon to be preached, right? Notice, you can, Paul writes lots of letters that end up in the Bible, right? He writes to the church at Ephesus, that's Ephesians, to Colossae, that's Colossians. He writes to the Thessalonica, that's First and Second Thessalonians. He writes to Corinth, First and Second Corinthians. He writes to, to Rome, that's Romans, right? A bunch of them. Do you know how they all start? Just like we read. Why? Because it's his only message, right? Now, he's got lots of different things to say to different people, right? He's not, uh, he's not writing to Corinth for the same reason he's writing to Colossae. He's not writing to Rome for the same reason he's writing to the Thessalonians. But his response to all of their different situations is going to be built on the singular message that he has. The Gospel. In fact, he doesn't mince words with the Corinthians. He says exactly this. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. So, so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom. I didn't invite, invent a bunch of sermons, right? as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved, listen, to know nothing while I was among you except Jesus Christ. Now you've got to understand this word Christ, right? It's the Greek word Christos. Uh, but it's built on a Hebrew concept. So the Christ was the anointed one, the, the Messiah, the King they were waiting for who was going to set them free, right? So that's all this gospel imagery here. Maybe you're like me, when you grew up, you just thought Christ was Jesus' last name. Not true. It's a title, right? So you could almost translate Jesus Christ like this. King Jesus. Right? That would be an appropriate translation. For I resolved to know nothing was among you except King Jesus and Him crucified. What's he saying? I've got one message. The Gospel. Now I know you Corinthians, if you would go on to read the, about the church at Corinth, they had lots of problems. Probably just like our church, right? But before Paul can address any of those problems, he said we've got to understand the Gospel because the Gospel is going to be the basis to address each and every one of those things. We saturate the Gospel with everything we do 
Because we believe the church actually only has one message. And that that message is actually the only message that any of us need. You might say, the Bible is really long to only have one message. And it has some really crazy books in there that make no sense to me. Uh, And I've been reading and studying the Bible for decades now, and I'll say to you, I happen to agree with you. It is long, and there are some books that I would prefer just to not spend very much time in them, right? Leviticus, you know, no one likes to do their quiet time in the morning in Leviticus. (laughs) Or the crazy prophets towards the end. But if you read any single thing, what you will find out is this story of the gospel is actually front and center in everything you read. In fact, you'll begin to understand the Bible on a whole other level when you understand it's just narrative types and forms and speaking of the character of God that's all wrapped up in this gospel message of a God who would come be with us so that he could win a great victory over the sin and death that have entrapped us so that he could set us free to true life and peace. All of a sudden, everything makes sense. The gospel is the only message so we can read as we did. Remember a couple of years ago when we went through the book of Numbers? Remember at the beginning you were grumbling? You're like, Numbers? No, no, no. This is terrible. There's like three times censuses are given in there. There's genealogies. It's super boring. They're wandering in the wilderness. It's horrible. But we went through it. Do you remember what happened? At every twist and turn, what did we find? The gospel. Jesus was there, right? Not his name. But the idea of who God is and what God was doing, this is the only message, the gospel. And so we saturate it with everything we do. First reason, the gospel is our true message. But there's another reason why we saturate the gospel with everything we do, and that is that the gospel bears fruit. You heard Paul's words in these, this opening pericope here, where he says, the gospel is bearing fruit all over the world. And the gospel is bearing fruit amongst you. Uh, On a pragmatic sense, you could say the gospel works. It does what it's supposed to do. It points us towards God, and it begins to fulfill the longings in our hearts in such a way that we bloom as people into what we were created to be. This happens in two very different and very dynamic ways. I'll give you the theological words first, and then we'll try to make sense of it, right? The first is, the gospel saves us. And the second is, the gospel sanctifies us. Have you heard those words before? Saves us just means it rescues us from ourselves and from our enemies. The gospel is the means by which God rescues us from things that would want to destroy us. And sanctifies just means the gospel helps us grow in our faith. Helps us become the people that God created us to be. Helps us bear the fruit of being truly human as God has created us to be. So let's make sense of these two things. And to do this, we're going to need to go just a little bit further into this first chapter of Colossians. So if you skip up just a little bit uh, after Paul concludes some more greetings, he begins to flesh out this concept of the gospel and, and what it means for them in particular. Verse 13, this is what he says. He says, for he, right, this is God, he has rescued us, us being all of us, from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son, that's Jesus, he loves. In whom we have redemption 
the forgiveness of sins. There are three really important words in these two verses that we have to stop and make sense of so that we can begin to understand on a very personal level what this cosmic gospel proclamation means. That is that even though the gospel is a proclamation for the whole world, right? Jesus says that He's come for the whole world. It has very personal meanings for us. And so we say it personally, it rescues us, it saves us. So the first word that Paul uses here is the word rescue, right? The gospel is the means by which God rescues us. Now we kind of understand what rescuing means. And we can think of imagery of rescue and make sense of it. Uh, but the, the, the word in the original language, you remember that the New Testament is largely written in Greek when it was written. The word in the original language is actually packed with powerful meaning. The word rescue actually means to, to save someone from impending danger by bringing them close to yourself. So, the only imagery that makes sense to me, I've never seen this happen except in movies, I'm not sure it's even possible, right? Is when the person is either unknowingly uh, standing on a train track or in the middle of a highway, uh, or in the cartoons, they're tied down to the train track, right? And someone comes and pulls them out of the path of the speeding car or truck and saves them by bringing them close to themselves. Do you see this? The idea of the language that Paul's using here is imminent destruction or danger that, that, that God is rescuing us from by pulling Him close to ourselves. So what is this danger? What is this destruction? Well, it's what the Bible regularly refers to as sin and death, right? And we make a distinction here at Hope between what I call, I'm not sure this is the perfect way to say it, but it makes sense to me, what I call capital S sin and what I call lowercase s sin, right? Most of us are only familiar with lowercase s sin. It's all the stuff we do that we know we shouldn't do, right? The complaining, the grumbling, the cheating, the lying, the bad thoughts about other people, the dehumanizing way we treat other people. Uh, some of it's worse than others, but it's all lowercase s sin. It's what is actually a symptom of the problem that we actually have. You see this? So what I call capital S sin is actually the corruption that exists in our hearts that leads us to act in these kind of rebellious and uh, destructive ways. Does this make sense? And so what God is doing is not rescuing us from our lowercase s sins because that would be a rescue that would need to happen moment by moment, right? Unless you're far better than me, I would need rescued perhaps a million times a day. But the rescue is actually happening on a far bigger scale. It's why the battle has to happen on a cross of crucifixion. Do you see it? Because Jesus is actually defeating the capital S sin that lives inside of us and that is causing us to, to, to live in rebellion to God's rule in our life. And He actually can only doing it by taking on death onto Himself. It's profound. By so doing it, He actually then begins to give peace to our lives because that thing that controls us 
is actually being dealt with. I think everyone, even though you never heard it in these words before, you can relate to what I'm talking about, right? The capital S sin is the why we do the things we know we shouldn't do. And we wrestle, and we struggle, and we lack peace because it can't be dealt with by our own means. We're filled with fear. We're filled with anxiety. We know we're not perfect. We know we're broken people. And, and, and we're overcome by this truth of the matter. And what's actually going on is that your heart is longing for a Gospel. Your heart's longing for a message that would come to you and say, listen, there's new leadership. It doesn't have to be you anymore to try to calm this problem. And this new rule actually is giving, is offers you the peace that you long for. It starts to get personal when we understand destruction that often characterizes our lives. But there's a second word in here that's really important for us to understand, and it's the word redeem, right? So often when I think of the word redeem, I think of coupons, right? Do you use coupons? I'm going off on a tangent because it's not what the word means, right? We redeem our coupons, right? So we've we've been given by a company a free piece of paper that will give us 15 cents off of our $30 carton of eggs, right? Or however much it costs these days, you know? That's not what this word means. This word actually has a powerful meaning in its original language. It had to do with the the slave markets of the day in some ways. Uh, But it actually has to do with buying back something you previously owned. So think of this imagery for a minute. Think of your most favorite possession that you have. Right? You don't have to tell anyone because it might be embarrassing to you. You know, like a blanket you're still holding on to from when you were two or whatever. That's fine. Uh, or a copy of some rare theologian that everyone else thinks you're a nerd. If you're in theology club, you know what I'm talking about. Right? You get it. Think of that thing for a minute. And think then of the price you pay to get it. Right? It costs you something. And then imagine it was stolen from you. And rather than being returned to you, it was put up for sale and you had to buy it again. Does this make sense? This is exactly what that word means in the original language. When Rach and I were uh, in college, uh, when you got to be an upperclassman, you had the privilege of living in the apartments on campus. Except we went to a Bible college that wasn't well-funded. And the apartments on campus were actually a run-down group of apartments uh, over the highway off of campus in a particularly seedy part of town. Uh, And oh, by the way, there was about eight parking spaces in front of those. And then if you went even further into the darkness, there was a a road filled with potholes that led to uh, a parking lot with no lights or anything like that. It was a horrible place to be. And so you can imagine all that went down in that parking lot. There was cars being broken into left and right all the time. One of those cars was Rach's car. Now, she drove a beautiful Ford Bronco. I'm being sarcastic. It wasn't beautiful. It belonged to be parked in that parking lot. It fit perfectly there, right? But inside of that car were some valuable possessions for Rach. In fact, we had just gotten engaged a couple of weeks before. And long before that, her dad had given her a ring that she wore as a special bond between her and and her parents. And so 
when we got engaged, uh, Rachel took that ring off and put it in the box of the ring that I gave to her. And not really thinking about the safety of it or the need to do it, she just kind of stuck it in the center console for a day or two. And of course, when the car was broken into, the one thing that they took uh, was this ring. And it was heartbreaking of such importance to Rachel. And so my thoughts go, what is someone going to do with a ring like that? And so later that day and over the course of the next couple of days, I found myself going to pawn shops all around the area looking for this ring, not hoping that I could convince them that it had been stolen, but being willing to buy it back. Wouldn't it be an awesome story if I found it? Because I didn't. But it's a perfect illustration up until this point. You get it? <laughs> I don't want to leave you hanging for too long. I didn't find it. Um, but that's the picture. Do you see it? Of something that's been stolen, that, you, that was valuable to you, and it's so valuable to you that even though it costs you a lot to get it originally, you're willing to go pay maybe an even greater price to get it back. Maybe this is a better example. Um, sometime over a decade ago, there was a movie that was released called Blood Diamond. Maybe you've seen it, maybe you haven't. Uh, I'd encourage you to, to watch it. It's painful to watch in some parts. Uh, but it's a, it's a movie about uh, civil war in Africa and how that's often propagated by the diamond trade and how the diamond industry is actually getting funded in many ways by child soldiers who are propagating civil wars on the backs of diamond sales. And so this term blood diamond came from this idea of diamonds, these really valuable diamonds that were being uh, excavated on the backs of the, the blood of children who were dying in the midst of these civil wars. This story takes place in the middle of a civil war in Sierra Leone. And in it we find a dad uh, whose village is attacked by uh, one of the, the armies uh, in, that, in that war. And his son, Dia, is taken by these people. Uh, and he's brainwashed. And he's trained to be a child soldier. And so this man spends the rest of the, the plot of this movie trying to track down his son while also trying to track down this really valuable diamond that he had hid. And it comes to its powerful climax when he finds the diamond and turns around to see his son holding an AK-47 pointed right at his head. Ready to kill his dad for a diamond because he's been brainwashed. And through tears and sobbing, this man reminds Dia of who he truly is. That he's his son. That he's not who these men have trained him to be. And as Dia begins to loosen his grip on the gun, he begins to open his arms to an embrace that reunites him with his dad. I don't know of a more powerful cinematic picture of the gospel. Because friends, this is our lives. We've believed other truths about who we are. 
and we're living these divergent pathways in life, thinking that maybe they'll bring us peace, and the peace that we taste is fleeting always. And then we have a God who loves us so much that He's entering into our lives with consistency and urgency and persistence. Even when we point our rebellion directly at Him through tears and through a personal crucifixion, is pleading with us to remember who we actually are. That we, as we sang earlier, are children of God. And He's willing to pay a great cost in order to redeem us. And we get our third word in this section. It's the word forgiveness. Now this is a word we're pretty familiar with. We understand the concept of forgiveness. But we don't often understand the concept of forgiveness in the bigger paradigm of gospel and identity. You see this? Because all of this gospel language is, is bringing us back to who we truly are, who we were created to be as, as children of God, sons and daughters of God, living in, in dynamic relationship with God and being everything we were meant to be. And, and God pays this incredible price of the cross in order to win the great battle and victory that brings us true peace. And this true peace is actually tasted through forgiveness. Because forgiveness isn't just saying that the bad stuff, the lowercase s sin stuff that you did is okay. Right? It does that but it's actually wiping the slate completely clean, the capital S slate clean, and saying, I no longer look at you on the basis of those things. Instead, you are what I say you are. Right? We sang that to start the whole service, didn't we? Who you say that I am. That's the gospel. That's what's accomplished. Friends, if you've only heard tidbits of the gospel. If you've only heard propositions about heaven someday or hell or whatever or that stuff, if you've not heard about peace and identity, you haven't heard the gospel. And every time you hear the gospel, you have opportunity to respond and to finally take hold of the peace that your hearts and your souls long for. Perhaps this morning is that opportunity for you. If you embrace Jesus as your rightful King, Everything I've just said is now true of you. No questions asked. In fact, Paul says in his letter to the church at Rome, he says, now you're more than a conqueror. Nothing can keep you from God. Nothing. Why do we saturate everything we do with the Gospel? Because people are like popcorn. I learned this lesson a long time ago. Right? I love popcorn, and recently I bought an old air popper, right? Because it's way better. You guys that are eating microwave popcorn, just stop, okay? <laughs> Bring back the air poppers like it, like it existed in the 80s when we were going to sit down and watch family movies on Friday. So I've got the air popper. It's super loud. It's obnoxious. My family hates it. And I pull it out, and I make my popcorn. But it's inevitably, you know what happens with popcorn, right? That every seed is different, isn't it? And so some pop immediately, and some it takes a long time for them to pop, and some never pop at all. But the beauty of popcorn 
is that if you contain, continue to, to maintain the environment that's necessary for it to pop and become what it's meant to be, then there's space for everyone who are at different places in their journey to finally understand. Listen, I went to a church since I can remember my first memory. It wasn't until I was 18 years old, 17 years old actually, that I popped. It wasn't because they didn't preach the gospel. It's because I needed 17 years to make sense of it. Does it make sense? I don't know where you're at in your spiritual journey. Some of you I know a little bit more than others. But it's incumbent upon me to keep putting this truth in front of you so that when you're ready, when you finally understand it in its fullness, boom, you can pop and embrace the peace that your heart longs for. We saturate the gospel with everything we do. But listen, we're a little bit different than popcorn, aren't we? We can't really say that all we are is popcorn. We're a little different than popcorn, right? Because what happens in the gospel is the more you think about it, the more you understand. For some of you today, just by hearing some of these words defined or hearing some of the illustrations of how I almost got Rachel's ring back, just hearing some of those things, you're understanding in an even deeper way what God has done for you. Every time the gospel is spoken over us, every time we hear it, every time we're in an environment of it, it goes deeper in us. Do you see this? That We will spend the rest of our lives teasing out the implications of who God is on the basis of the gospel. It can't be done in a singular sermon. So we saturate everything we do with the gospel. But the gospel doesn't just bear fruit to save us. It bears fruit to grow us. You know what's fascinating about this letter that we've read, been reading today, the, church, the, the letter of Colossians? Do you know who it's written to? People who have already believed the gospel. <laughs> Isn't that fascinating? In fact, do you know what's true of all of Paul's letters? Without exception, they are all written to people who have already popped, to use our popcorn analogy. They've already embraced this gospel. How do we know that? Because he starts most of the letters by calling them saints, right? People who have believed. And yet, he's telling them the gospel all the time. This doesn't make sense to us, right? Well, the gospel is how you got in. And then once you get in, you learn all the stuff, right? Nope. The gospel is not just a ticket to a dance. It is the dance. Or as one author put it, and I think is a better illustration, the gospel is not just the diving board, it's the pool. The gospel is the means by which we grow. Way too often, we hear this story of grace, of what God has done for us, and it pulls us into this, and then we try to add on all this religion, right? All these laws and obedience and all these other things. And we're like, oh, this isn't as cool. This doesn't make sense. And what you're doing, you're burdening yourself down. You're not tasting the freedom that God You understand? What we've done is we said, gospel of grace gets me in. Now I've got to prove to God that I was worth what He did for me. No. You don't reject the gospel by living in religion. You embrace the gospel by going deeper in it. This is what Paul constantly says. He says to the Corinthians, take every thought captive to the gospel. He says to the Romans, on the basis of this gospel, offer your lives to God. Do you see this? That is that if we're going to be people who stay in, in the faith, it's going to happen because we stay in the gospel. 
or as Paul puts it to the Colossians a little bit later on. We have this verse? There we go. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, that is, the gospel that you heard and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven of which Paul, I, Paul, have become a servant. Do you see it? How do you continue in the faith? You do not move from the hope held out for you in the gospel, right? It's not you get the gospel and then you do lots of Bible studies. Listen, we have Bible studies going on right now. They're important. They're good. But it's the gospel that helps you grow. Do you see this? Or perhaps we can make a better sense of this. If we go even a little further to the beginning of the second chapter of this letter, uh, chapter 2, verse 6, where Paul says this, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus, King Jesus, as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthening the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. That is, how do you live the Christian life? Paul says the same way you entered the Christian life is how you live the Christian life, right? Just as you embraced Jesus Christ as Lord, so continue living in Him. That is, the Gospel is the means by which we grow. It's not just the means by which we enter the family of God. And Paul even hints at it a little bit in this, right? Because what does he say? Filled with gratitude. (laughs) A means by which, or the key means I would even suggest, by which we grow in our faith in following Jesus is we are overflowing with gratitude. How does that happen? Because we're saturated in the Gospel. You see it? When you are continually overwhelmed by what God has done for you, it fills your heart with gratitude. You know what it makes you want to do? Follow Jesus. <laughs> All for, for way too long, the church has been saying, obey God so that you can love Him. That's false. It's backwards. You love God, and when you do, you will obey Him. Jesus says, if you love Me, you'll follow my commandments. He didn't say, do my things and you'll learn to love me, right? No, that's religion. What happens is, the more we're saturated in the gospel, the more God grabs hold of our heart, the more it begins to transform us, the more we begin to live the way God calls us. Let me finish with another illustration. Um, If my parents were here, I'd bring them up to testify. I was not a great child, right? I was a middle child between two sisters, and I continue to be bitter over it at the age of 44, right? Not, that's not true. Well, maybe. I don't know. But I was mean. I lashed out. Uh, I was grumpy. I was sarcastic. I was always trying to, to cut corners and to, and to be rebellious in all kinds of ways. I was flat-out difficult. And time after time, I would find my dad uh, or my mom saying things that I say to my kids now. And they're, my kids are far better than I, than I was. Like, geez, just please do what I ask. And listen, this is what I would think in my head. I'm just being honest with you. Your kids might be thinking this too. Not a chance. I'm not doing <laughs> what you asked. I'm not interested in it. It doesn't seem good to me. It doesn't seem pleasurable to me. I'm not doing it, right? But you know, now I don't have to live by a bunch of rules. My parents don't like have curfew for me or what anything now. But if, if my parents called me now, this far in life, and, and said to me, Adam, could, could you do this thing for me? 
Do you know without hesitation, I would say, yes, I'll be there now. Now, what's the difference between those two things? The difference is a vast experience of love. Because as a 5 or 6 or 7 or even 12, 13, 14, even 17 and 18 year old, I couldn't really process. I hadn't had enough time or saturation in how much my parents loved me. But now I really kind of do. And now I would do anything for them. Why do we saturate the gospel? Because we believe following Jesus is the life that leads you to true peace. But if I just stand up here and tell you, follow Jesus, it doesn't work like that. God needs to catch your heart. And when He does, you will love Him in such a profound way that you will want to do the things He calls you to do. At Hope, we are defined by the value gospel saturation. It is not a hurricane or a thunderstorm that plows through and leaves shrapnel in its path. Nor is it a frustrating sprinkle that just gets pixie dust on top of other things. Instead, it's our desire that the gospel would be a steady and soaking and saturating rain that gives you and anyone who connects to us in any way the opportunity to experience it for what it truly is and to have the growth that only it can bring. Can I pray with you?